Hello, welcome to another edition of the Ampere Amplified podcast. My name is Mahesh, and I'm a performance engineer in the CPU team here at Ampere. And this is a podcast that we have to share stories from inside our company with people outside. And you can get a peek into our culture, our technical culture, as well as the problems that we're solving. In this episode, I am being joined by two people from our software organization, open source software organization. To my right, I have Zaid Alali who is a recent new grad, a new PhD from the University of Colorado, where he was doing research on networking and cloud engineering under Professor Richard Hahn. Welcome, Zaid. Thank you. I was going to ask you if you could share a little bit about the work that you did before you came here. You've been here like four months now, right? Uh, It's a little over seven months, yeah. Seven months, I joined early, like mid-January of this year. Okay. So back in CU Boulder, I was working on a research project that focused on Linux kernel development and autoscaling. Our goal for our project was to build an autoscaling system that enables big data applications to scale to multiple machines in an automated manner by modifying the Linux kernel and without using user space applications. Okay, got it. Thank you. And on my left, I have a senior member of our Linux OS team here. We have Darren Hart, who's a distinguished engineer here at Ampere. Welcome, Darren. Thank you. I just want to share that I am really excited to chat with both of you. I'm a performance architect in the hardware team. Sometimes I find myself out of place because I'm a software guy sitting in the hardware team. Sometimes I've been in a software team and they call me the hardware guy. I end up kind of being like a boundary sitter. And we know that to build a successful CPU and server product, we have to have a great operating environment. And that includes the system software as well as the firmware and everything in between. And so talking to you about that stack and where you fit in, it's just really cool. I, I, I think, just want to say that. I think that's a good perspective. And it's one that Renee relayed to us recently when... Um, I think it was me that had mentioned, you know, some of the challenges we face at a hardware company. And and she listened to everything that I said, but then at the end she said, but we're not a hardware company, we're a systems company. And I thought that was just a great phrase and I'm going to keep repeating it every opportunity I have. Yep. Yep. So I want to share with the audience, this is another episode where we're asking a junior member of our team to interview one of their senior mentors. So we're really excited here. Uh, Zaid, I'm going to just hand it over to you to get this party started. Thank you, Mesh. Thank you for having me today. And I'd like to talk to Darren about his career. Since I'm at the beginning of my career as a junior engineer and I have so much to explore, I would like to learn a little bit more about Darren's journey and how you uh, got here, basically. And uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the jobs that you held in the past, can you tell me a little bit more about the first position that you held? Was that the beginning of your journey? So I, I started out my career at, at IBM. And it was interesting because it happened accidentally. And I, I think often expect there to be like this deliberate plan or this intention behind a lot of what we do. But I, I ended up at IBM because I went to a job fair. And I was... 20 minutes into a 30-minute interview with a hiring manager, and it wasn't going very well. And at some point, he stopped and he said, wait, are you applying for an internship? I said, yeah. 
So I was doing a really terrible job at interviewing for a first-time job outside of my senior year of college during the first six months of college. And that, of course, was hilarious and led to me getting hired as an intern at this company. <laughs> and, and then from there, you know, you, you, you have a network. And once you have that network, your network influences where you go. So while I was working in microelectronics and I, drew, I, I wrote some wafer map editing software as basically paint, that just introduced me to semiconductors. It introduced me to companies like IBM, and it gave me an opportunity to, I think like Mahesh said earlier, as a software engineer, work in, work in and around what is very much hardware, which was also one of my early introductions to Linux. And just it, it excited me. I, w- I was interested in that that interaction between hardware and software. I, I like turning the LEDs on. I like you know making the like flipping the switches and seeing things happen. And I was just genuinely curious about how all of this worked. And there was a lot to explore. And similarly, coincidentally, while I was there for my second internship, IBM had a program called the Linux Technology Center. And that was head up by Dan Fry, who was the, the director of that organization. And I was in Vermont, and he had an office in New York. And being the just expert communicator that I was as a second-year intern, I wrote this director an email that said, hey, I'm an intern at IBM, and I like Linux. And he said, well, you should come see me. And so, <laughs> and so I did. And, and that was just a really fantastic experience. I, I drove out. Uh, we talked about Linux, what he's trying to accomplish in it. It appealed to me. It was interesting. And, and so from there and throughout the rest of my college career, a couple times a year, I'd reach out to Dan and just say, this is what I've done. This is what I've worked on. This is what I'm looking for. And he would give me some advice whether or not to continue with my master's or not do, he said. So I did. And then when I was ready, uh, about six months before I graduated, I emailed Dan again. I said, hey, I'm, I'm about to graduate and I'm looking for a job. And he said, okay. And then shortly thereafter, I got an email from my, my first boss at IBM. His name is Tom Hanrahan. And the email read, Dan says I should hire you. We should talk. And so that's how I landed in my first job working on the Linux kernel at IBM in the Linux Technology Center. Um, the moral, I guess, of that whole story is, you know, your network is a lot more important than your resume. It really has a big impact on your opportunities. And then we tend to select from our opportunities as opposed to invent them, I think, a lot of the time. Wow, that sounds great. So it started as an internship and evolved into a full-time yes. position. Yes. Uh, have you done any uh, like internships in other places while in college? Some things that you maybe did I, not like or was not appealing to you as much? I tried really hard to, and and I ended up at IBM each time. So I did, okay. uh, I think just three, three internships because the fourth year I stayed to get some coursework done. So the first two I did at IBM, and Intel had offered an internship on a subsequent year, but that was competing with IBM's Extreme Blue program, which I got accepted into, and so that was kind of a no-brainer, which was a, a technology mixed with business program where you would try to not just 
do neat things with with technology, but also be able to explain their value to a business and why and why what you're doing matters. So it's a pretty great program with a lot of really talented folks that I, I learned a lot from. So I was at IBM for the first seven years of, of my career, and that was all based on that was that was Linux kernel development, primarily focused around um, real time Linux. So getting better determinism, lower latency out of the Linux kernel really early on in that part of the development. And that that real-time Linux kernel development has always been going to be ready next year for the last 20 years and, and made huge progress. But, you know, it's uh, still still a thing that that's ongoing. Yeah, to sort of speed this up, I guess, once the, the real-time work had sort of stabilized and we were kind of known, it was a known quantity, work was clearly winding down around this. This was like the golden era of, of Linux kernel development at IBM. And, and it was, it was a, it was a wonderful phase, but it was a phase that was starting to change. And I was finding myself sort of looking for that next stage in my career. And I got a call out of the blue from Dave Stewart at Intel. And he said, Hey, would you like to come work on doing some Linux kernel work at Intel? And so I just had a conversation with them. It was, it was one of those great experiences where, I mean, I was dreading these interviews with, Arjen Vandeven and I met with Dirk Hondel and like this, these really big names in this space. That interview process was also interesting. I remember one of those that I went into just, just shaking, right? One of those was this person sat down and they said, so we know each other from the kernel community. I know what you're able to do. I've seen your work in the kernel. Uh, what do you want to know about Intel? And it was a very, that's not what I was expecting, right? And, and, it, and that really spoke to what's kind of unique about working in the Linux kernel space is your work is your resume and it's public. And the, not just the code that you wrote for the kernel, but how you defended it, how you talked to people about it, how you iterated on it, how you collaborated with people, it's all up there. When I'm looking at resumes and I'm reviewing resumes for people that work in the kernel, the first thing I do is I go and read not just their, you know, what's their commit history, but also what's their, what's their dialogue history. I go and I read whatever they've posted to LKML, right? That is literally there forever. <laughs> so uh, seven great years at Intel also, well, six and a half, I didn't get my eight week sabbatical because I'm an idiot. No, uh, I had a great opportunity when I left and it was worth, it was worth making that change. But Intel was interesting because it wasn't, I, I did a lot of kernel work. But it was in and around the kernel, and it was really at Intel, I think, where I began to think a lot about systems and complex systems and how the work that I did in the kernel affected not just the hardware underneath, but the OS above, and not just that, but the systems that they were deployed in. And there's some overlap between the things that you do in real time with, with industry and industrial things, and ultimately with autonomous vehicles and safety critical engineering. So I, I got into the safety critical world, and I spent a couple of years leading the functional safety software global domain at Intel, which really emphasizes the, our individual role in the systems that we build. Complex system is Systems is a really fascinating topic, right? And then finally, I took a slightly different, little bit of a jag in my career outside of like Linux and operating systems. And when I went to VMware, I ended up running a open source technology center. So uh, I was in a senior director role and I ran a team of about 30 people 
contributing to things everywhere from, yes, Linux kernel, but also Kubernetes orchestration to machine learning to IoT, observability. It was a, it was a very broad role. In the end, that was four or five years, this opportunity at Ampere came up, and yeah, then I ended up here. Wow, that is quite the rich past and experiences that you've, you've been in Linux kernel, you've been pretty much all over the place after you've finished with VMware, which is very exciting. So how did you diverge in your career at VMware at some point from Linux kernel? What made you change what you've been working on to try something new, like what you did at VMware? So I had had an experience early on as, as an early engineer at IBM, and my team lead told me, you know, you'd make a really good manager. I was so offended <laughs> as an early engineer, right? Because I was still living squarely inside the Dilbert frame. Um, and I hadn't, I hadn't appreciated like that, you know, that was, he intended that as a compliment, right? And I hadn't really appreciated why. And I think throughout the rest of my career, what I noticed was I'm curious by nature. I like to find problems and I like to solve problems. A lot of those problems that you're exposed to, you can discover in the code. But a lot of problems are not in the code, right? A lot of problems are in the way teams interact, the way we set goals, the approach that we take to solving problems. And what I found throughout my career is I kept looking for root cause, root cause, root cause. And that kept pointing me, uh, pointing up, right? That kept pointing me up in the organization. And ultimately, that's about alignment and strategy and what we're trying to accomplish. And ultimately, if you follow that long enough, you end up leading an organization. That's just kind of the natural conclusion of that. And so when, um, again, it was, it, was, it was Dirk Hundel that had invited me to VMware and had asked me after I had joined if I would build and run the Open Source Technology Center. And because of that experience, uh, I said, okay, well, let's... Let's, let's give that a shot. Let's see what that'll be like. And I, I, I learned a lot both about managing and leading teams, but I also, I also learned a lot about myself from that experience. So it's been also, like you mentioned, networking and people throughout your career kind of help shape the path that you go through. I believe also like mentors play a big role in, in this area. So did you have... A mentor that you have a special connection to that really shaped your career or did you have multiple like what is your mentorship experience in the past and have you mentored people as well i think mentorship is really important and i think it's something that we can all participate in at different stages of our career i definitely had mentors paul mckinney Dirk Hondel in particular played big roles. It's funny because you uh, you asked me like did do, did I have mentees that I worked with? I, I don't know if you went and asked Paul if he would say Darren was one of my mentees because sometimes we learn from people in ways that maybe they didn't expect. And one of the things that I remember at Intel was shortly after the shortly after the principal engineer promotion, you become kind of highly visible. One of the things I remember was sitting in a meeting, something I didn't know anything about, and I was asking questions about acronyms and, and other things. And after that meeting, someone had come up to me and they said, I think you just 
taught me a really important lesson about, about being willing to ask questions. And like ask the question is something that I share as a, as a like career advice kind of point if people ask me for one. But it, it, was, it, be, it came out of that meeting because if I had the question, somebody else had it too. Turned out this guy had that question and was reluctant to ask it. So I think, I think mentorship, I've had more, I've had a few formal like mentee-mentor relationships that have, that have evolved and I've watched, like some of them were formal because they literally came in as an intern from high school and my title was mentor for them. So that happened. I've done that four or five times, I think. So it's through a mentorship program. There's matching. Right. And so that's very formal. And I've kept in touch with some of them, some via LinkedIn, right? I've seen them go on to do technology things, to go on to Linux things. Some of them are off doing management at engineering companies because we explored some of those things together. And some of them actually still reach out to me today. And I've had a couple of one-on-ones with folks just in the last year, uh, even though we met first time like 10, 15 years ago. It's a tenured position, right? Well, it kind <laughs> of feels that way, right? And we've both grown in since that time too, yeah. which is... When you impact someone that deeply, like they remember that. I remember all the mentors and even right. informal ones that I've had. And so that that's definitely like a the bond between you and, you know, Zayed, you and your professor, Right. Like it will always be there. It's yeah. A tenured position. For sure. Right? Yeah. So it's, I, I always say it's like a, it's a two way street. Eventually, like you start learning from one another. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the, the thing that I'd like to say about mentorship is with the exception of internships, where I think they need to work that way, where there is sort of a formal thing, I think it's, much more effective in my experience for individuals to choose their mentors than to have them assigned and also to not expect it to be a very formal thing. Backing that out a little bit, when it comes to getting a lot of value out of a mentor, one of the things that I've done that I've, that that I think was successful for me and I've tried to encourage others to follow is when you're talking about like, how do I plan out my career and what do I want to do next? And I spoke earlier about how a lot of the time it's, it's not very intentional. It's not a straight line. Your, your career is very likely to meander around based on opportunity and network. But I think also something that is successful was successful for me early in my career and still is today is find someone or someone's doing things that you admire and would like to do yourself and then draw a line from where you are to where they are and call that your current career vector and you get to pick the direction and the speed yeah. um, that, that you're moving along in that in that way but as you move from you to them they can help you identify the things that got them there and there's activities that you're going to go through to do the thing that they're doing and then along the way you will change your mind Right. But you'll have more perspective and more skills and more experience. And then at that point, again, find somebody that's doing the thing that you want to do and then move your career vector. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think it's important to think of it as a progression that will change. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really great way to put it. It's more of a vector rather than just a clear path from point A to B. Right. It's like definitely something 
I struggle with and I believe a lot of juniors like me struggle with when we think about our careers. Am I in the right path? Am I in the right place? What should I do next? Do I keep doing engineering stuff? Do I want to explore management? Do I start even now if I want to go to management? That's just um, so many questions keeps someone really anxious about their career choices. But in reality, it's like you mentioned, it's just a vector. You go from one place to another and your path keeps changing while you're meeting more people, having different mentors, having different jobs. And that makes a lot of sense. That's definitely a very uh, good way to put this. I think based on what you just said, though, too, for a lot of people, I think it's important to go ahead and explore those things. Okay, so unpopular opinion. Every engineer should be a manager. Walk a mile in my shoes. Yes. <laughs> right. uh, understand what it means to work with your manager to solve their problems, because ultimately they are responsible for the results of the team and, and their problems are our problems. I feel like, I hope this is true, I feel like I'm a much better engineer, but more importantly, a better team member by having managed for some years. I think it was a very valuable experience. The fortunate thing is, to your earlier question, am I on the right path or, uh, you know, are you on a good path? Do you have things that you can learn? Are you interested in the work? Do you have people you enjoy working with? You don't have to answer that. Um, (laughs) But if those things are true, then you're in a good path because you have so many things that you can learn and grow and do. And you have to do those things at most companies anyway. You have to do those things to at least couple of levels within the job ladder before you can manage, which makes sense. You need to understand the role and the job and the things like that. So I guess you don't have to answer the question, is management the right path? But is spending some time in management a a good path or a good decision or even if it's short term? I, I would say yes. So like even if you do it and you decide this isn't for me and then you go back to engineering, that is a that is probably still a very valuable experience to have. So all of the past experience in your career eventually led you here to Ampere. So can you tell us a little bit more how you basically ended up here? How did you make that decision? Yeah. The things that are important to us change over time. You and I have had some chats uh, just just this last week about things that I had forgotten were important to me as a junior engineer that are important to you and what you're looking for, right? What I found during, while I, w- while I was running a team that was working across a broad set of technologies was I missed the, the narrower scope that focused on things that I had skills, that, that I had relevant experience and ability to contribute to. As a in and around the Linux kernel kind of guy, I didn't have a whole lot of input to machine learning or observability or software supply chain or like there was a long list of things that my team did that I couldn't really contribute to. And that's normal for for a number of roles, but it didn't, I found that I was struggling to connect and feel very fulfilled in the role that I was doing. It wasn't about managing, it wasn't even about my team. I had a really solid team, but it was about me feeling like I was contributing in a way and to something that I was passionate about 
I wanted something where I felt like I was expert in this space that I'm that that I have some stewardship over. I was looking for purpose. When I started looking for this, one of the things that attracted me to Ampere was one, I knew some of the people. So I had worked with Maury at Intel for years, and there's a lot of Intel folks here. The silicon operating system software world is even smaller than the open source world. So I knew some folks. Um, that is often a good indicator. Again, your network is a good way to bring you in. I had some conversations with them, but I was looking for a scope and a purpose that was really motivating to me. But more than that, too, I was also looking for, there's a cultural environment, too, that was really important to me to be present in any job that I would move to. And, and that was one, and, and I, need a, I need a good way to describe this succinctly, but it was one of curiosity, collaboration, and humility born of experience. We have a lot of very experienced folks that started Ampere, and one of the things that I found refreshing about talking to them was this humility. Like These are really, really skilled, experienced people. And they know what they don't know because they failed enough to realize, maybe I don't know everything. That is something that I think really attracted me to Ampere and has largely held true over the last nine months, like any company. It's not all roses, right? But I think, I think those principles stand out as things that we strive for. And I see... And I see in a lot of the people that I interact with. Now, how did I re- how did I know that without working here? Well, I listened to all of these, and I was really inspired by the people that talked about their roles and the things that they did and the things that they cared about and how they how, how they went about getting that done. So ultimately, Ampere provided me with an opportunity to come back to something, kind of my roots, Linux, silicon enabling in an environment that, so that provided me with this purpose that I cared about, as well as people that I knew and, and, a, and an environment of, of collaboration that I was looking for. So yeah, that's what brought me, brought me to Ampere. Sounds amazing. Sounds like your recent victor pulled you back into the Silicon world and uh, yeah. Linux. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want so- to turn that question around to you a little bit first. Yeah, and you know, Darren kind of explained why he's here and and what he observes about the culture. Is that does that resonate with you now? You you've been here for a while. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been here for about six months, and I'm still learning about Ampere and the people at Ampere. Definitely, I've heard some of the talks, some of the podcasts. A lot of what Darren mentioned resonated with me. And it was a little bit tricky for me to make that decision for someone who's just starting their career. Do I want to join a startup? Do I want to come here? I had all of these um, questions in mind when I was applying for jobs, and especially when I had offers at some point that I wanted to make a choice. Do I go here or do I go to a big tech company? And then at some point, um, after talking with multiple people, definitely multiple times with Darren and uh, some at some point with you, Mahesh, I did feel like this is where I'm going to enjoy working. This is where my contribution is going to have an impact. And the vision of Ampere, of building cloud-native processors, is something that I've already like thought about when I was working on my research because we were working on scaling and then 
at some point I had this idea and thought about, we have not explored a lot of scaling opportunity in hardware compared to what we do in software frameworks that we have all over the cloud. And then once I've learned about Ampere and have all these thoughts and talks, um, definitely hit me at some point. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to start. Good. I'm glad we're legitimate. (laughs) (laughs) I know we've crafted this culture of learning and growth that Renee wanted to put as the foundation of building here. And it's all, it's up to us to continue that. Part of that is like uplifting the next generation. And I think that's what's happening now in in the open source team here. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely one of the things that I learned about Ampere after I joined, not before, uh, when I started working with the Linux OS team. So all of my team members are really eager to learn and not just to learn, but also teach each other. The way uh, everybody in my team communicates, the way we try to preserve knowledge and share it with others makes me feel really comfortable in this environment. Yes, I'm a junior. I don't know as much as anybody in my team because they have much more experience, which sounded really intimidating at the beginning. But once I started working and realized this dynamic, I really enjoyed what I'm doing. And this uh, makes it really a good environment to start learning and be impactful and produce for this uh, work. Awesome. Yeah. Which is also a segue for me to ask Darren a, a little bit about the OS team. I've, I've been here for six months and I'm still learning about our duties and responsibilities. How would you like put it in your own words? What is the mission of the Linux OS team? Yeah. Good question. I'm actually, uh, I think mission statements get a bad rap. Um, I actually think they're really important because they, or, and if not a mission statement, but like guiding principles to help us make objective decisions about the work that we do. But the Linux kernel team here at Ampere has sort of three major areas that we contribute to. One is very much silicon enabling. So we're building new stuff. The Linux kernel isn't always ready for it. So we work to get Linux ready for Ampere Silicon. What that means early on is often not writing a bunch of new Linux kernel code, but using Linux as a way to debug our, our early designs. So whether it's emulation or, or virtualization or emulation or however we're running this stuff before we get parts or very, very early parts, right? And that we're, we're bringing up you know, you might think of a of an SOC as something that's like done and baked and you receive it and then you test to see if it works, but it's actually not like that at all. There are, you know, more than 50 billion transistors in these things and there's tons of software that runs inside the SOC or on the platform before you get to the OS, which means there's just a ton of little knobs or tweaks or or tunings that can be made to to build the final product. And Linux is actually one way that we can get visibility into whether or not those things are right. So the very early, early stuff that we do with Linux is actually not about Linux at all. It's about using Linux to shine a light on, um, hey, from an OS world, when the, when, the, when the system gets to this state, we should go here, then here, then there. But we actually went here, then there, then way over there. So that's probably a problem with X. And then we find that team and we go back and forth and share the visibility that we have with the expectation of where it should go with the expertise they have in how to get the thing to do 
this or that other thing. And so, yeah, stage one is early bring up, apply, apply Linux operating system expertise to try and bring a part up out. At stage one, would you say that one of the ways that makes you good at what your job is, it's not about writing Linux code or drivers. It's about reading the code, seeing where it goes and debugging. And a lot of this is how well you've debugged in the past and knowing where to look. I think that's a very good description of so much of the, when we say I'm going to be a Linux kernel engineer, what we really mean is I'm going to spend 99% of my time reading code that other people wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> exactly. And then, and, and then trying to figure out how to make it better, better, maybe, or using it to solve some, some other problem. It's a very mature code base, right? So, so yeah, absolutely. The early stage of bring up relies heavily on past experience with how the kernel is supposed to work and then knowing when it's not doing that and then applying the tools that you've developed to be able to trace that code, find out what it is versus what it should be, understanding the interface between the kernel and the the firmware, the platform that's presented to the kernel and knowing what to expect there. So these, these early stages are a place where you have people with very deep systems and architecture knowledge that can provide a lot of value at that at that stage in the in the game. Another thing that we do, so part two, I guess, another thing that we do is we provide Linux kernel tooling internally. We try to keep our kernels current. We try to bring in uh, early integration of, of patches that are being worked on, changes to the kernel that are being worked on to, to get them integrated with other changes. Um, and to make them available for the different teams across the company to be able to look at them. So that that means, hey, the performance engineering team, their focus is performance engineering. They can and do configure, build, and patch kernels. But anything that we can do to sort of consolidate some of that that kernel engineering work so that they can make progress on the work that they do. I know the hardware engineers really value your Linux expertise in the ability for our team together to find hardware bugs. So we're using your very mature code base as a checker, right? Oh, it shouldn't be doing this. It really is something either configured in the silicon wrong or real bug. And we've definitely found actual logic bugs this way. right? Right. And then to make that available to these other teams, we have to also apply sort of similar, there's as much expertise in how to configure and build a kernel and run a kernel as there is in, in like how to actually write one. It's not, maybe not exactly true, but there's a lot of knowledge that goes into, how, the kernel is huge. It's 15 million lines of code. Uh, there's, you know, 20,000 configuration options that you need to be able to deal with. So having a team that is able to put out a here's a tiny kernel, here's a larger kernel, here's an environment in which you can run it, that's valuable to the to the rest of the company that may not have all of that expertise sort of consolidated within their team. Yep. So that's an internal deliverable that the Linux kernel team is responsible for. And and then the the other side of things that we're we're continuing to work toward and being being able to do more of is to when we do have to write new drivers or when we do find that hey this part doesn't perform as well as we wanted to because of whatever assumption exists within the kernel, we engage with the Linux kernel community and we work towards coming up with 
a solution to either a, a longer term difficult problem that isn't necessarily, hey, we're missing a driver, we need to write a new one, but there's this strategic thing that needs to happen or the way we think about things or the heuristics are off or you know, whatever is, needs to be tweaked sort of going forward in time is an ongoing thing. But any of the work that we do to fix bugs, write new drivers, all of that is done upstream first. And so that's all outward facing. We have some internal review that we do first just to make sure that we're not throwing garbage over the wall, right? But the third part of what we do, of course, is contributing to Linux itself. And, and I believe the Linux OS team is also new and still growing. So my, my following question is, for someone thinking about joining Ampere, in particular, the Linux OS team, it was a little intimidating for me to apply first because I wasn't sure if my current knowledge and experience in the Linux kernel is going to be enough to actually start contributing. Like you mentioned, our team mainly contributes to upstream. And we're talking about a huge project where, with contributors from all around the world. So at, at first glance, when you think about it, it's there's going to be a push to upstream where we're going to have reviewers from all over the world trying to review your code, at some point approve or decline your uh, commit. It really sounds intimidating at the beginning. And when, you, when I think about it, especially if I've never practiced sending any patches upstream, so for someone who's junior, like myself, trying to get into this world, what, uh, what is a piece of advice you would give them? And what is a very important skill that they need to have to be successful in this world? So how does, how, how does someone new to this space engage with, with Linux? What do they need to know? Exactly. Okay. Because everyone has different, um, say, exposure to Linux, right? Uh, I wrote of my first system call in college, is that enough Linux experience? And then I maybe wrote a device driver, a simple character device driver. Is that going to be enough? How much knowledge do I need to acquire? How much experience does someone need to get into this uh, space? So I think it depends very much on what the role is hiring for. Are we going to be able to hire somebody right out of college that can do deep ARM64 architecture systems experience with you know, the very with intimate knowledge of the exception levels within the within the ARM architecture and how that works within the kernel and pr probably not yeah. like yes I don't want to say that that person doesn't exist but you know there's probably three of them out there that we could try to attract that takes time it takes experience and so one of the things that I, I think is important in building a healthy organization is to is to keep you can use the word bench strength. You can use the word hiring. It. You can say hiring at all levels. There's a phrase that I'm forgetting here. We call our team the junior varsity. <laughs> so, so I think it's important to build a pipeline, I think is the word that I'm looking for. And so if you are building a pipeline, you have to also be able to create opportunity where somebody can come in and develop that experience as opposed to coming in and having that experience. Now, if we're going to hire a distinguished engineer, I'm going to expect that they've got some demonstrable Linux kernel contribution and that they can show that they can interact successfully there. If we're bringing somebody in out of college, that's a huge plus, right? But if they've worked with Linux and they can demonstrate that they sort of understand how it works and how it builds and how it's configured, that is valuable. But more valuable to me 
when I'm looking there is somebody that's got a, a problem solving problem solving mindset. They're curious by nature. They can respond to new information in constructive ways, and just demonstrate the ability to, to, to learn and to and to keep working on something. I think in terms of skills, I'm sure I should say something about you know knowing C and and understanding compilers and having taken a compiler class and like all these things that I should say about this. But I'm going to say if I had to pick two classes that I w- that I would love for every new hire to take. That would be uh, persuasive writing and statistical analysis. Wow, I did not expect that. <laughs> I, I kind of saw that coming. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was going to jump in here and, yeah. and talk about like persuasive communication is important. You had mentioned before the entire Linux kernel history since 1990 has been on public display for anybody to see. So all of your foibles and issues are now there also. Right. And people are like, oh, yeah, I, I'm a different person now. And they regret some of the things they said in 1992. And so that gets to there's such a vibrant community and a vibrant community is filled with so many different personalities. And that creates this diverse culture as well. So part of your job is to navigate all these wonderful different personalities in the LKML and the conferences and so on. So continuing your answer, how do you do this? How do you manage to persuade people? So I think every community is different. The Linux kernel community values data. They are a pragmatic group. Um, one of the challenges that silicon companies have is, is a lot of times the pushback you get is, well, that hardware doesn't exist yet. And then, of course, as, as an engineer at any given company, you can't say anything because you don't talk about roadmaps publicly. Um, so, so, but the, the reason I mention that is just they, they care about practical solutions. Don't come, don't come with this wild, brilliant, elegant solution that doesn't actually solve any, any real practical problems. But how do, you, how do you persuade people? You persuade people with data. You persuade people by, by staying objective, even when other people don't sometimes. But you also persuade people by understanding where they are coming from. And this is a big part of being successful in Linux. Being successful in Linux means understanding all use cases, not just your use case. Linux is valuable to the industry because it addresses so many use cases. For, a, for an individual or a company to come in and make a change without considering how it affects everyone else is a surefire way to get that change rejected, but to also harm your own ability to make changes in the future because you, know, you trust it a little bit less. Like, you sent me a change that broke dozens, hundreds, thousands of drivers because you didn't even bother to build what you don't care about, even though what you did affected those other things. It's really important to understand the, the broad set of use cases that make Linux so successful. Linux is successful because any complex system is successful because of broad, heterogeneous deployment and testing. And so when we, when we submit changes to the kernel, for example, there's a couple of tests that you always run. Make all yes config, right? And, and the make def config. 
and make all mod config. And what these things do is they build absolutely everything and the default. And this is one of the best ways to make sure you don't break Linus's computer, which is also one of the top criteria for getting patches merged. Um. <laughs> so, so here's a question. Some of your job is to make sure that uh, you, know, you don't break others. How much of your job is also to see patches that are incoming from other companies and make sure that they, you know, they've done their due diligence, but maybe they're stepping on your toes as well? Yes. So... One of the one of the challenges I think in the Linux kernel world is when somebody says I want to be a Linux kernel engineer, what they often mean is I want to write new Linux kernel code and get it upstream. But if you go and you talk to the maintainers, I maintained a subsystem for about five years. This is similar to like walk, walking a mile in their shoes or being a manager for a few years as an engineer. If you talk to the maintainers, very few of them will say what I need is more code contributors. No, what they need are more people that will review patches and read code. So a great way to build credibility and add value to the Linux kernel community is to review incoming code. An easy way to do that is, or an easy way to justify spending the time on that is code that affects your platforms. If this is something that you care about, try to make the time to review those things, provide feedback, test it, let people know that you have, or better yet, start to become a known quantity, an expert in a given field within the kernel that you can slowly start to contribute to by just reviewing patches. Some people have made their entire kernel careers out of reviewing other people's stuff and, and then automating that job away. Um, <laughs> not, not really. Um, there's a... CIs are great. <laughs> they, they, they are great tools to shine the light on the right spot for a human yeah. to go dig in and right yeah yeah so that leads me to getting a little bit more technical and i believe for all this to work you have to have a good skill set using tools like git in order to submit patches and we've had this conversation before about git hygiene and how important it is to have good practice of Git. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is a good Git submit or a Git message that you can write in order to send it upstream and it can be properly reviewed and eventually accepted? So so thanks for bringing my soapbox in for me. Um, (laughs) Let me get up there. Uh, (laughs) So I think Git hygiene or Git best practice is tightly coupled with the two things that we talked about earlier, which are persuasive writing, as well as understanding the impact that the changes you make to others. This is a a kind of a we before me kind of thing or a systems thinking where you understand the bigger picture. Understanding our deliverable is is key. So I could go through, you know, a list of things that make up a good Git commit. Go read Chris Beam's good Git commit. Right? You get you get seven things about how long this line should be and what what voice you should be using and and where to put spaces and lines and that's that's all good. But we will do those things naturally if coming into this we are we fully understand our deliverable. So a lot of people think of software as files, functions, variables, classes. Right. 
So I will, I take the position that software is not made up of those things. Software is not functions and variables. Software is a collection of change. If somebody sends me a snapshot of the Linux kernel, that's next to useless to me. What I would really like to see is the full Git history. Because if I have the full Git history, I can understand why every line of code exists. Not just why it exists, but why the person thought it should exist, which is even more valuable. Because when code comes in for me to review, I could review it for correctness, but that is dependent on my understanding of what it's supposed to do. So in order for me to review code, I need to get inside the head of the author and understand its intent. And so as an author of code, I want to, it's important for me to understand that I'm not delivering code, I'm delivering change. And I need to, and then the other thing I need to understand is there are not enough code reviewers and maintainers are overloaded. And so if, and, and this is not just, this is not just me being nice to maintainers. I want to get my code in. So the best way for me to get my code in is to make the maintain and to make it easy for the maintainer to make progress by being the lowest hanging fruit on the tree. The lowest hanging fruit on the tree says, I experienced this problem. It looked like this. I researched these approaches and this one solves the problem by doing these things, right? And then you say, this is why it was a problem. I did explore these other things and this is the thing and this is how I intend to solve it. And so now I have a list of what I should expect from this patch. And now when I'm reading through the patch, I can say, they said they were going to do this, this, and this. First of all, does that make sense? Like before I get into the nitty gritty and I read the code and everything else, like, does that sound like a plausible solution? Yes or no. If it doesn't, we don't need to go nitpick their code. We can just say, you know, the approach is a challenge because of whatever. But let's say we agree on that and we start going through the code. As I start going through the code, what I can see is they said they were going to do A, B, and C, which I see. But then there's this other thing that's in here. And this happens a lot. Maybe it's just extra white space. Maybe they added a print statement that they forgot to remove. Or maybe they accidentally included a file that they were working on from another patch set and it's just sitting here in the sitting here, right? If I if I documented my change properly, then I can review the code to see that it implements the change and only the change that they said they were making. So that's the kind of thing that we want to communicate to the maintainer as part of as part of our change. So so that's really about getting inside of the getting inside of the author, understanding their intent. Communicating intent, super important. When you were a maintainer as part of your maintainership, did you receive patches where you saw the intent, you saw the code then, and then you were able to then say, actually you could have solved this a different way in this other file? Yes. Um, either either a different way like 15 million lines of code in the Linux kernel. There's a lot of ways to go about things and it's easy to miss things. So somebody writes a brand new driver for something and you say, well, there's this whole framework over here that handles 80% of what you just wrote in a common way. And so we can, it's, it would be preferable to not do that, but to instead add the incremental bits that you need to do over here. 
right? And so you're also looking for that feedback from the maintainer, which is what comes back to release early and release often, right? Don't sit on a brilliant idea, but instead share a version one that's functional that is also soliciting feedback on the approach, right? So that, that part's really important. I think the other part that's really important in terms of communicating change to someone that needs to review it is to do so in a way that makes it easy to consume. So we talked about being able to say, these are the changes that I made and then I, I, I'm receiving them over here. Okay, they match. But the other thing is a lot of times there's prep work to do. So you want to separate out functional units. And I, there's a lot of phrases for this, small functional changes, atomic changes. A lot of times people think of, you want small atomic changes. So you want me to make you want me to send you a change for each file that I touch? No, because software is not made of files and functions and, yeah, and things. arbitrary. <laughs> right, that's just an arbitrary grouping. Yep. What I want by atomic is it does one thing. What is the one thing that this accomplishes? It should be a single feature, function, fix, theme. What's the one thing? And then atomic means it's sufficient. It's self-sufficient. You can apply this patch and the kernel works and, and it doesn't need anything else to work. It's partly because never break the build at any stage in the process, right? No one commit should break the build because then you can't do a bisect. The, the thing that I'm trying to get at here is, let, so the easiest thing to, 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 the easiest way to do this is to say you're doing a cleanup first. If I'm saying, hey, I'm going through and I'm changing the name of this function so that I can add all these other things. If you add all these things, and change the function name at the same time, then you end up with a much larger change set. And I have, to, I have to verify every place that you changed the function name in the context of all the other changes that you made. And, and what that means is you have to review it for functional change, which is harder than reviewing something for non-functional change. So if you're doing a cleanup, the idea is I'm reorganizing some things, I'm refactoring some things, I'm whatever it is, but I'm changing nothing. When this patch is in, there's no difference. I reordered stuff, I renamed stuff, I added some comments. And what that means is I can read your patch for that part of it as a non-functional change. All I have to do is make sure it still does what it used to do. That's really easy relative to does this new code do this thing that you said you wanted it to do that it doesn't do today? And what are all the implications of that? So you want to separate things like that so that when I'm reading something, I can read it for just that one topic at a time. And you want to break things up that way. Just like you build, just like when you're building something, building, building complex things out of small pieces right. is something that we can wrap our tiny human brains around, right? That's a good thing to do from a code review perspective too. Like break it down into pieces that I can, I can review easily and quickly. And you're much more likely to get a maintainer's time that way. Long answer, I think, to your question about Git hygiene is really about understanding our deliverable. We're delivering change. Understand the environment in which we're pushing that change is one that is starving for reviewers and present it in a way that makes it easy to review. But also, we break down our patches in that way so that they can be easily maintained, meaning I can backport one and send it to an earlier version of the kernel without pulling in a bunch of stuff I don't need because I made it atomic. It means that when I'm bisecting a fix, or I'm bisecting a bug, meaning I 
you know, divide and conquer approach, right? I can go through each one of those patches and the kernel will work at every single stage so I can identify the one thing that broke it in the future. A lot of times you'll get pushback that says, hey, you know, I'm in a rush and I don't have time to like refactor these things or I don't have time to write a compelling git commit message or whatever. It's not a good argument because you have so much, if you're the author, you have so much valuable experience embedded in your brain from the week or two weeks that you spent debugging this problem, share that knowledge right with, with others. And it's going to take you a few minutes yep. to, to do this versus the time that you spent debugging it. And that kind of comes down, I made an assertion, it's going to take a few minutes if you know your tools, right? So, so take the time to learn Git, take the time to learn how to use interactive ad, understand interactive rebases, know how to split a split split changes that show up in the patch learn how to refactor squash just generally rebuild your your git history in a way that you can you can communicate it effectively it's time well spent oh that's very informative thank you um so that leads me to my last question i understand you probably use tens of tools every day is there any particular tool that you feel like it's underrated, something that you probably use on a daily basis that makes your job a little easier? That's a really hard one to answer, probably because I could pick a bunch that would really date me. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had a, a, one of the previous podcasts in this series, we were talking about tools and how tools get created. And uh-huh. there's always some problem that existed first before the tool. The tool yes. wouldn't be there unless the problem was there. So you could turn this around and kind of say, like, what problems do you face and what are the tools that help you? Yeah. Well, I think I think data collection and processing is something that is a big part of what we do as kernel developers. But I, I, when I say kernel developer, that is not a very precise term, right? There are so many areas of the kernel that, that need different tools, right? I'm not going to try and give you a good tool to use for a GPU driver. I know nothing about that. And so there's there's a big space there that I just don't know. But for the types of things that I've worked on, which typically focus around core kernel stuff, scheduling and locking, and that's, that's about tracing and collecting lots of data and being able to post-process that data. So there's a couple of things that I would say I found to be really, really valuable. That's going to be just your, your standard Unix philosophy and tool sets, understanding piping, grep, sort, said, awk, and being able to process that data live on the command line and get the information that you need. I, I think another one I'll throw in there is, is getting good with a spreadsheet. There's a lot you can do on the command line, and I've honestly spent most of my time in the command line. But a lot of folks don't get past using a spreadsheet as like digital graph paper with maybe some. But learning how to manipulate data in a spreadsheet to visualize what you want to see, I think is a very powerful tool. So yeah, becoming expert in that is useful. And it it doesn't need to be a spreadsheet. It can be getting good with using R, something I'm not particularly good at for statistical analysis, or um, being able to visualize it with a tool that's easy to pipe data into like GNUplot to be able to create useful, if not all that aesthetically pleasing, <laughs> plots dating myself, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I believe there's also a bunch of uh, Python libraries yes. that are available for visualizing data. 
Yes, matplotlib is one of those, which is which is very useful. Which tools are you at your disposal? Which ones do you like to use now? Um, I mostly for visualizing data. Uh, take a broader question. Mm -hmm. What do you use in your normal day-to-day -day debug, or you know, coalescing of data? What are the things that are you are drawn to now? Um, so for for debugging in particular, if we have to pick uh, mostly in user spaces, it will be GDP, like setting breakpoints and uh, starting from there, basically. In uh, the kernel side, it's something I am still learning. I uh, started learning uh, KGDB a while ago. It's a little bit more complex to use where you have to uh, boot into a virtual machine and uh, start debugging from there. I guess the first time I started debugging without learning any tool was interesting. I was uh, a bunch of print case statements because I didn't know how to deal with the kernel. How do I actually set breakpoints? How do I uh, debug in the kernel? And then I've learned about um, the kernel dump and the log files where you can actually collect things. But uh, like Darren mentioned, I found it really powerful to learn how to use grip, piping, awk, getting all these tools in your disposal and yep. just write it in a, in a single command and you have a dump of information that you can just immediately use. I've also found, found it really empowering to use Excel. I didn't know how to use Excel at least very well in the past because I thought it was just a spreadsheet that shows a bunch of data and you can just maybe sometimes visualize that data. But actually you can do much, much more than that. One of the early projects I worked with, with uh, Darren at Ampere was um, fixing some of our GitHub pages to uh, update the uh, backporting to CentOS. And then at some point, I learned how to connect tables from a website online and have that table in Excel update automatically when the website changes. So having this at your disposal and then learning how to import and export data from Excel was also empowering. So all of these tools that I've learned, and I'm still learning how to use them even more, I found really, really helpful. And it can save you a lot of time. Um, and, and I didn't know about that either. So I, I learned that from, from Syed myself. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Cool, cool. I do have one question for Darren. Uh, you've had quite a long career and have grown a lot in, uh, over the time and influenced a lot of people. And you also have a great family life. I uh, want to just kind of share with us, like, how can you have it all? How are you able to be who you have to be for your family and also be a leader in at Ampere and the Linux community? There's a, there's a few assumptions in there that we should probably unpack. Um, and there's a, I think there's, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a deep one. I think one of the important things, I wish I remembered where I read this, but there was an article that that talked about the ebbs and flows of the, the cyclical nature of our careers. And I think it's really it's it's really important to not look at someone at someone's highlight reel and, and to compare it to yourself, right? I've worked really hard at trying to find a good balance, but I've also failed miserably at it in the past in my career where I worked too much, where I worked to the point where I was ir irritable and no fun to be around, where I, I stuck on projects too long when I should have moved on because I felt some obligation to do so. So there's a cyclical nature to our lives, I think, where there are times when I've been a better 
husband and father than I was an employee. And there's probably times when I've been a better employee than when I've been, than a husband and a father. But so with that said, um, I think learning how to set boundaries is something that has been difficult for me. I tend to be drawn to projects that I'm passionate about. So it's easy for me to spend way too much time on them. And I can be very one-track minded. I think a lot of engineers can be. Uh, it's part of being able to spend absurd amounts of times on hard problems is part of what allows us to do our job, but it can be it can be tricky to manage. And I think for myself, I am a collector of hobbies. And so I have a lot, I have a breadth of, of different things that I enjoy doing and skills that I've built over time. But the only way that that works for me is to cycle between them. I, I don't write code at home and learn to make bread at home and build a shed at home and build cabinets at home and make toys for my kids at home and go hiking with my family. And like, I don't do all of those things in a month, week, or even a year. So I, I people ask like, what are your hobbies? And I'm like, well, I collect hobbies. And, and this week I'm, you know, building windows for my shed. Another week I'm playing Gran Turismo with my son. Another week I'm, you know, whatever. But I think I think setting boundaries is important, and I think scheduling things is important. If you're if you're like me, scheduling things is important. Trying to connect with my with my daughter was something that was tough because we didn't over we don't have a lot of overlapping hobbies. We have very similar personalities, but not overlapping hobbies. And so the things that came maybe naturally to my son and I, I had to work at harder to find time to, to, to connect with her. And, and we've been really successful in scheduling time every Saturday to go get breakfast together. Every Saturday from you know 8.30 to 10.30, my daughter and I go get breakfast and we talk about something because it turns out one of her hobbies is talking. Um, <laughs> and so just making that time to be with her uh, helps. I don't know that I did a very good job answering that was your question. Excellent. But. Excellent answer. What One of the things that I've seen you do as part of your team, just putting a spotlight on your collection of hobbies, is that every Friday you have this post that you put on Teams <laughs> and you're like, this is what I'm doing on Friday, yeah. Friday evening. And it's the shed or making an Ampere logo out of 3D printing, yeah. uh, all these things. And then what happens is that it creates this culture and other people also then share like, oh, guess what? I ran a triathlon this weekend and oh i did this and it's a way for us to get to know each other through uh, this this medium and, and you know that was a very ampere specific thing that that friday post that we do um because i think i think these things that we do to try and connect as people is very very dependent on our given circumstance at vmware we did this very very differently people needed a different sort of outlet so we did it we had a different thing uh, when i was at intel it was very different because we were all in the office and so we had a different way of connecting here at ampere the way we use the way we use our team chat is different the way we so fr the friday post was a way to make this like really really lightweight just like here's a little bit about me go ahead and share if you'd like right so yeah it's definitely a, a great way to show the human side of people at NPR. We're not just engineers. We're not robots. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I really do appreciate that as well. Excellent. 
So yeah, we're near the end of our time. So I want to thank both of you. It's been a real pleasure to have you here, especially because I know both of you have listened to podcasts before joining this company. And it's cool to see now the next generation of people who have listened, joined the company and are now doing a podcast with us together. So that's, uh, it was a real treat. So thank you so much, Zaid Alali and Darren Hart. They're both in the operating systems, Linux operating system and open source software team. Thanks Thanks for having us. Awesome.